here at Joshua, the third chapter, Joshua, the third chapter, and I also want to say congratulations to Lance Bronner being re-elected as our treasurer. Uh, congratulations to Sam Coy uh, for being re-elected on the board, and also uh, congratulations to Larry Wilson, our newest board member. And uh, if you missed the business meeting, I'm sorry we don't record it. Uh, we enjoy Kevin's rendition of the minutes that he writes. And we have discovered if you can't say anything uh, that won't get recorded, no matter how silly it is. So, uh, but anyway, we uh, we appreciate all of the, everyone uh, for coming out, participating with that. Let's look at Joshua, the third chapter. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm tired of the wilderness. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. I hope you're not tired of the word, but I, I'm tired of the wilderness. Amen? Yeah. So we're going to step out of the wilderness into the wonderment today. We're gonna we're gonna step over and next week I, I've got a, I told Andrew I've got a message I'm working on and I'm gonna begin to talk about more wills. I'm gonna I'm gonna begin to talk about revival. But this is part of it. This is part of it. I want you to look here as we're going from wilderness to wonderment. As we step out of the uh, of the bewildered state of our mind, we step out of the uh, the uncultivated, desolate areas that we're not meant to live. It's a journey we should have passed through to get over to the wonderment, the, the awestruck wonder of a marvelous God. And if your salvation experience has not been that, then you need to keep journeying until you discover it. Because God is good. God is good. Father, I ask for your anointing. I ask for your presence. I ask for the power of the Spirit of the Lord to convey your words. Lord, I just ask, Lord, that you would just preach beyond my ability by just stepping in and saying what you want to say. I love you. I'm so thankful that you chose me. I'm so thankful for this house. Thankful for this day. I'm just thankful, Lord. Truly thankful for your word. I love your word because I love you. Joshua 3. Let's begin reading in verse 8. You shall command the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the bank of the Jordan, stand still. Stand still in the river. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Draw near and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this, notice, I want you to get this. By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will thoroughly drive out the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Ezrazites, Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. I don't think there's any ites left out, do you? <laughs> From before you. So the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. You're getting the image. You're letting God begin to form your, your thoughts right now. Now select 12, verse 12, select 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, with the souls of the feet of the priest to bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, touch the water of the Jordan. The water of the Jordan that flows from upstream will be cut off and piled up. It's going to be piled up. When the
Because it's banks all the times of harvest. Oh, we could stop and preach right there. When the Spirit begins to move, you can expect there's going to be harvest. Why does the Spirit move? Oh, just to make me feel good. No, it's far more than that. He moves so that the harvest may come in. He pours His Spirit out so that the harvest may come in. Now, as we look there, we've seen, then the water that flows from upstream stood still. The priests stand still in the Jordan, and now the Jordan's standing still. Now, rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city beside Zarephath. The waters that flowed down toward the Dead Sea stopped and was cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jordan. The priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord stood firmly on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until the entire people completed crossing over the Jordan. Hmm. We're going to see Jesus in this passage here. And if you will hear what the Spirit saying to the church, if you will hear what the Spirit saying to you, it's going to take your faith from here and it's going to bring it up here. It's going to elevate your faith to the place that it needs to be. Now, as we talk about faith, I want us to get this. Without faith, you can't please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, and they that come to God must believe that He is. You, you, you can't please God without faith. Faith is not walking in and seeing the results already taking place. No, faith is when you believe before the results get there. Faith believes that when you, when Renee, when you come to the altar and, and, and you, you've got the pain in your neck and your back and, and, and you're walking in on a cane and then all of a sudden, as she was last week, God touches her. She stepped out in faith and she just believed God and as a result of that, God touched her and God healed her. Now, faith, you can't please God unless you have faith. Now, hear this, what James says, but someone will say you have faith. Andrew kind of got all over this this morning in my friend. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. The demons believe as well and tremble but you you do not but do you want to know a foolish man that faith without works is dead see faith is more than belief it includes belief but you got to take belief and you got to couple it with action before it actually constitutes as actual faith because if you profess you have Belief in God, and you say that you walk in faith, but there is nothing to back it up according to the scripture, then it's not really faith. Do we see that? Do we get that? So belief has to be accompanied by action before it can be constituted as faith. Otherwise, we're no more, no, we're no better than the devils. Because they believe. Now, this is a statement that I've shared last Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and I'm going to say it again because it has profoundly changed my understanding of faith and grace. Now, let me read the verse for you, and we're going to get to where we're going in just a minute. Just hold with me, okay? Because you need this.
Because the Lord asked this question when he comes to the earth. When Jesus comes, will he really find faith on earth? Will he, will he find it? That when, when Jesus said that, he, he wasn't talking just to the disciples. He's talking the day he comes. When he gets here, Randall, will he find faith on earth? That's not a question for your neighbor. That's a question for you. Will he find you walking and living in faith, taking your belief in the sacrifice of Christ and, and, and coupling that with action and moving in the direction that he wants you to go? So we see in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, at least any man should boast. This is what I want you to hear. My response to God is faith. That's my response to God. Faith. His response to me is grace. And it is sufficient. Why is that important? It's because grace, yes, it has been perverted in the last few decades. That it's become a license to do what I want to do instead of a, an empowering to do what God has purpose for me to do. But grace operates with faith. But see, when I respond to God in faith and say, Lord, I believe you, and I'm putting, I'm getting out of the boat, and I'm putting one foot in front of the other, I'm going to walk in the direction, out of the wilderness, out of the grief, out of the sorrow, and I'm going to put my hope and my faith and my confidence in you, and I'm just going to move because I believe. I'm going to move because I know you're real. I'm going to move because of the completed sacrifice of Christ. I'm going to move because God, I know in who to me. Share it as he gives me grace. That's right. And so he gives me grace. He empowers me to do that thing. Does that change everything? Does that not change everything? See, so often we get we get hung up in the weeds in the wilderness of our mind thinking we have to source this thing. We don't source it. We put our faith in the one who sources it, and now he empowers us by his grace, and now we step out. The Lord called me to preach. I said, Lord, I can't preach. He said, if you want to have a faith response, I'll empower you to do what I called you to do. And he called me so that none of the rest of you would have an excuse. Now, I want you to get this, and this is where we're going here today. The source of my salvation becomes the fixation of my faith. The source of my salvation becomes the fixation of my faith. What do you mean by that? I mean this. 
if I'm sourcing my salvation, my fixation is on my works. If I'm sourcing my salvation, then, then all of a sudden my morality becomes the end all to my righteousness. Now hear me. Righteousness, right standing with God, will always produce morality. Always. It'll, it will change behavior. I can look back and say, I am not who I was. I am no longer that wretched sinner that was, that was lost in the world, in my own filthiness, in my rags. I, the one day the Holy Spirit came along and said, son, even the servants in, my, in the Father's house had it better than you. So I got tired of eating the slop of the pigs, and I got up and I went back to my Father's house, and he met me, and now he put on me a robe of righteousness, and now I'm right standing with God. My behavior has changed because God's not looking for behavioral modification. He's looking for relational transformation. So I enter into relationship with God, and my behavior changes. Well, it's not because of my morality, it's because of his righteousness in me that produces morality. But see, if you go the opposite direction, and you try to let your morality produce righteousness, you're going to fall in a ditch every time. It won't work. So, the source of my salvation is the fixation of my faith. He's my hope when I have no hope. He's the healing when my body's broken. He's the joy that comes in the morning when the night seems too long to endure. He's the source. He's the reason. He's the hope. Oh, Holy Spirit, I want you and your work through me to be the utmost importance in my life. More important than bread and water. More important than provision. More important than popularity. More important than the lights on in the building. I just want the glory of God resting in the house of the Lord and upon his people. This takes us here to Joshua. The third chapter. Now I want you to get it here because the Lord is using this imagery. He's using this imagery because he wants us to understand in so many different levels what he's trying, what he is accomplishing in his church. What we see is there was a family called Israel that ended up in Egyptian bondage. The Lord said, I'm going to use that. I'm going to raise a nation out of that out of that experience. And so they went in 70 strong and they came out a couple of million strong. Took a few hundred years, but they made it out. And the Lord challenged all the gods that were in that nation to prove that he was the greater God, that the God that they served was greater than the ones that the, that the Egyptians served. And so the Lord brought them out by miraculous signs and wonders. And first, it wasn't before he got through throat-punching the enemy, one God after the other, after the other, after the other, poking them in the eye, kicking them in the 
in the shin and knocking them on their head. And, oh, you got a little bit of power? Let me show you a little more. You want to stick with me? Let me give you just a little bit more. You, you think you can hang with me? Then come on and hang a little bit. And all of a sudden, they're like, we got to get rid of these people. The Lord opened up the Red Sea brought a kingdom of priests out. Brought a kingdom of priests out and brought them through the wilderness, not as a permanent residence. No, we've got to establish them something, a little something before I get you over to the place of promise. i got to let you know who I am because there's going to be all these gods swirling around trying to tell you how you should worship. God doesn't need anybody defining him. He has defined himself. So he gave them instruction, the Torah, what we refer to as the law. But he, he, he opened the Red Sea, but he also opened the darkness in the wilderness because they're going to carry this light. They're going to carry this light all the way into that place of promise, and they're going to conquer kingdoms by the kingdom of God. See, because the enemy... From the very beginning in the garden, we look at the garden of Eden and we see that as the habitation of man. But what we fail to realize is the garden of Eden was God's habitation on earth. Because the Lord walked with Adam in the cool of the day. So the enemy is trying to push God out of his own kingdom. Hmm. Earth. And the Lord said, no, I ain't going earth. Work. So, what we have here, what we have here is we've got them now coming that come out of Egypt. The naysayers and the unbelievers, they died in the wilderness, and now a new generation has risen up. And now they're going to go cross over the Jordan into the place of promise. They're going to execute God's plan, which is the furtherance of his habitation on earth. But driving out all the other nations, all the other kingdoms, in establishing his kingdom, his holy habitation. Is that not what Adam and Eve were purposed to do from the very beginning? Go, multiply, and fill the earth. Keep expanding the habitation of God. Keep expanding the habitation of God. Keep pushing out the boundaries of Eden. Keep on pushing them out till, till, the, holy, till the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Is that not our plan and purpose here today is to see the kingdom of God furthered in the kingdom of light pushing out the darkness so that his holy habitation may be established here on earth? Basic Bible. So as we look here to the word of the Lord, what we see is God has given us imagery that ties us back to the cross of Calvary. Notice there they have the ark, the priest carry the ark, and they step into the Jordan. And in so doing, God said, this will be a mark. This is the sign that I have driven out all the other kingdoms so that my kingdom might be established. The waters opened up. In fact, they piled up all the way down to Adam. Now, you see this ark. What is the ark? Does it represent the presence of God? Yes. Yes, it does. But it's more than that. This golden chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches high, 27 inches wide, made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, 
had rings on the corners and gold acacia wood poles that were erected, overlaid with gold, were put into those rings. And the Bible says they should never be taken out. Because they were always ready to move and should be carried by the priest and not by some beast of burden that's on some ox cart. We won't get into that. But inside there, Hebrews tells us that there was a golden pot of manna, the bread that came from heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. It was going to be Aaron's rod that budded. I believe it was still budding when they put it in there. It's probably still budding if you found it today. Because it was a declaration that there's only one priesthood. There's only one priesthood that is allowed to enter into the holy room of God and to make sacrifice for the sins of the world. There's only one priesthood. And no, Aaron wasn't the ultimate. It was a foreshadowing of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which Jesus Christ is after the order of Melchizedek. What am I leaving out? You got the law written. Man, I've got the man. Cover the man. Rod, just checking your Bible history. And you got the cap tablets that, that Moses, the Ten Commandments, that Moses received when he went up to the mountain. I present to you that that ark represents Jesus Christ. Because he is the bread that fell from heaven, he is the priest. And he is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, not anything was made, it was made. In him was light and light, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So that ark represents Jesus. Do you agree with that? If, I need, if you need further proof, you've got to look at the cherubims that overshadow. See, because that golden, that acacia wood case, that acacia wood ark was, the, was overlaid with gold. But the lid on top of that was made out of pure gold. And had two cherubims, two angelic hosts that faced one another. And that was called the mercy seat. And the reason why we liken that mercy seat to the, the ark to the presence of God is because it is Exodus 25, the Lord said upon that bloodstained mercy seat, he said, that is where I will meet with you. Mm. See, the enemy thought he had it all hemmed up whenever he attempted Adam and Eve in the garden because the Lord closed off the garden. And what did he use? To guard cherubims. So he said there's no more access to the holy place of God because the cherubims were guarding it. Access was denied. You cannot get back into the, into the habitation of the Lord. <laughs> no. God's not near finished yet. So he creates the tabernacle. In fact, he gives the design for the tabernacle. He gives it to man in the instructions. But within that tabernacle, that, that furnishing that represents Jesus, that furnishing that represents Jesus, that's going to go in the inmost holiest of holy area. Holies of holies. Holies of holies. And it's, a, it's that place where the rods, where, the, where the, the poles would stand out and the curtain was draped over those. As you could see from the other side, according to the Word of God. 
But what's interesting is that whenever they would walk into the priest and they would walk into the sanctuary, the veil that was covering the entrance or the place where the ark rested, woven into the tapestry, was cherubs. Garden. Are you seeing this? And once a year, one person could go under into that place to put the blood upon the mercy seat so that there would be atonement for the people. And this went on for year after year, decade after decade, until about a millennial and a half had passed. Now, see, there was denied access to the holy place of God. Are you tracking with me? And then there's limited access to the holy place of God. And then we see the mercy seat again. The ultimate mercy seat. It's what that. It's what that. Those cherubims, those angelic hosts, were supposed to be telling. I'm, I'm looking for the scripture because I, I want you to. I don't know that you're going to believe me unless I tell you. See, because if the fact was, every time that they moved the tabernacle, they would, according to the word of God, they would cover that ark. It was a veil over their eyes. They couldn't see Jesus. So the only one person once a year could see Jesus when he walked in. And he didn't get a clear vision because before he went in, he would fill that whole room up with incense. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't approach God in arrogance and in pride. And, oh, look at me, Lord, I've got this special kind of grace and I can do whatever I want to do. I can be whatever I want to be. And I, oh, no, it was holy. They had made sacrifice for themselves. They took up all of their, their garb and all they had was a linen representing the righteousness of the saints and before they went in they had to check their heart because they knew the sacrifice was made and they would take the coals off of the altar and they would touch the incense with it and then they would lean under and they would let it fill up that entire holies of the holies and when it was filled they didn't stand up boastfully no but they crawled in on their hands and knees and they got to the other side and when they got to the other side they would kiss them and they would kiss them Discovered. You know the story. 
You've watched Chosen. Cerebrums, they're the veil blocking the entrance into the or to remind you there's limited access. Then when he gets in there, there's a cherubim sitting on a mercy seat stained with blood. And he came to the tomb. When he came to the tomb, Said they stood on dry ground or in the. You guys seeing this? I'm seeing that. Let's do it together. One, two, three. 20 miles away, the water just piles up. Did he keep piling up? I'm sure he did. 
because that river didn't stop flowing. It was an overflow because it's harvest time, but it's all the way, it's backed up all the way down. That city that's near Zarephath, which means oppression. I'm going to back this thing all the way up to that image of Adam, the man of the earth. Because there's one day that's going to, I'm going to raise up some people that are not going to bear the image of the man on earth. They're going to bear the image of the heavenly man. We're out of the wilderness now. This is the sign. This is the sign that all those other kingdoms have come against the covenant people are inferior, defenseless, cannot overtake the covenant people. This is the victory, a sign of the victory for you and I. Who's the ark? Luke, Matthew, Mark all record the same thing. Historians believe and what would they believe? That at the place of the crossing of Israel was the place where John baptized Jesus. Ah, don't you love that? Luke 3, 21, Matthew 3, 13, Mark 1 and 9. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was baptized. While he prayed, the heaven opened. And the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form like a dove upon him, a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Get the analogy that God wants us to get. Wasn't the physical Jordan that opened that day? Something so much better. So much superior to a natural river. See, when the representation of Jesus that was veiled in there because they couldn't see clearly what the Lord was doing in the covenant that he was bringing. He, they, when they stepped in there, the physical Jordan, first that which is natural, then that which is spiritual. Now the Jordan has backed up all the way to Adam, the man of the earth, uh, uh, the, the one who came from the earth. It's, the, the river is backed up all the way to him. That everyone, all the covenant people were going to cross over. They were going to step over into the place of promise. Not one of them that came out of the wilderness were to be left in the wilderness. They were going to cross over together. But when Jesus came, at the very spot that the ark crossed, was the very spot that he was baptized. And when his feet hit that river, and John transferred the priesthood of the, of the Levitical priesthood to the order of the Melchizedek because in order to transfer, they would baptize one priest into the new order. And so when they baptized Jesus, when he came up out of there, now all of a sudden, it wasn't the Jordan that opened up. It was the heavens that opened up. And the voice that we know This is my son. 
This is my beloved in who I am well, well pleased. What was the sign that all the other kingdoms were destroyed? When the Jordan opened, this is a sign that the Hittites, the Hittites, the Ezraites, the Gergesites, and all the other Adiites are defeated. The Lord opened the Jordan, opened the heavens. He's declaring to his people, this is the reason I was manifest. You know I'm the son of God now, because I've been manifested. Every spiritual enemy hears this voice. It's, there's no, some people might have wrote it off in the natural, said, did you hear what I hear? I heard a clap of thunder. I don't know what I heard. It sounded like a voice, but there's no devil in heaven or hell, uh, in the heavenlies, uh, or in hell beneath that didn't hear that voice because they knew exactly who it was. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the one who's the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. See, because the fixation of my faith is on my source of my salvation. And he saved me. He is the source. And so my fixation of my faith is on him. Now, there, I could live all of my days and I might get one or two moments where I might be pleasing to the Lord. But God wants us more than that. He wants us walking in faith in the one who has saved us, delivered us, and set us free. My response to him is faith. His response to me is grace. And that mercy seat. He that loves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake goes to that tomb and discovers that that mercy seat that was stained with the blood of Jesus, just like the mercy seat there in the Ark of the Covenant is represented Jesus. The Lord said, that's where I meet with you. I'll meet with you right there. And now you can step in. Because the Jordan, as we have referred to it, Lord is my shepherd, shall not want He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Yea, go all through the valley of the shadow of death. Many times we liken the Jordan to crossing into the land of promise. There is a spiritual reality for us today to step into the places of promise. And there's coming a day where we will cross that Jordan into the ultimate promises of God. You have one or two options today. You can continue to trust in your morality for the source of your righteousness. Or you can go with Jesus. And you accept him as Lord and Savior. Now this is what I need you to hear. You're not making a sacrifice. He made a sacrifice. We have presented the gospel like we've done something to merit or earn 
given up those drunken days. I've given up all my drugs and my, my whoring around. I've given up all this unrighteous living so I can follow God. God didn't call you to keep being a prune face. This is a source of joy. another line of coke. I don't want to smoke another bong. I don't want to live in sin anymore. I don't want to live with the filthy thoughts in my mind anymore. I have been set free and he has done it all for me. That is the gospel of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's time we the church stop celebrating the old death life and start living life. Amen. We're not drunk as you suppose. <laughs> There's been some times you think, yeah, he's drunk. <laughs> he smells like it, he looks like it, he walks like it, he is drunk. <laughs> what do you tell you? I've never had a hangover with the Holy Ghost. Amen. <laughs> I won't get a hangover. Amen. Just keep pouring it out, pouring it out, pouring it out. See, when God becomes your highest priority, you don't want any of the rest of the stuff. Oh, that, that we would just fall madly in love with Jesus all over again and, and stop looking like we've made the sacrifice and accept the sacrifice he has made. Because if you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then you haven't tasted God yet. You haven't tasted the fact. If you have a greater craving for the things of the world, then you haven't truly been to the mercy seat. You haven't been to the grave. And when you go to the grave and you see the cherubims looking over, the angels sitting on either side, every time someone comes into the kingdom of God, that's the only avenue. It's the narrow way that leads to life. And it may seem hard. It's hard to the flesh. But it is righteousness. It rises up on the inside of us. Dead to self, we become alive to God. The mercy seat is the avenue. It's your final crossing in the Jordan into the place of promise. Stand, if you will, all across this building. Worshiping, if you will, make your way up. Father, I thank you. Father, I thank you. Father, I thank you. See, the Torah teaches us that truly there is none righteous, no, not one. That's why we got to anchor ourselves in God. I've had people ask me this question. I've never really done anything. They don't really ask it straight out. They just say, I've never really done anything all that bad. Why won't God let me in? because it's not dependent upon your goodness or madness. It depends upon his sacrifice. And if you accept his sacrifice, you'll accept his holiness. And you'll desire to be holy. And you'll want to walk away from that other thing because you're a new creature. You're not a pig anymore. You turn a pig loose, you put a, you put, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was looking at you, but I meant to look, no, I'm just kidding. You take a pig, you clean them up, put some lipstick on them, you drop them out uh, outside, and they're going to run to the first mud hole they get to. Because it's their nature. You're not a pig. They're sheep. Sheep need shepherds. Sheep can't make it on their own. They're a pitiful mess. 
They'll blow it in the dirt, and when their, their, their burdens get too heavy, they'll fall over, they'll come, become cast. And if they're not caught in time in the right season, they can suffocate. Or the wolves will devour them. But it's the shepherd that goes along and he says, that's all right. Picks them up. Puts them on his shoulders. Carries them back. Cleans them up. Talks to them. Just stay close to me and you'll be all right. Just stay close to me and you'll be all right. That's the life the good shepherd is offering you today. Please don't go another day without him. Please. Hear what God has done for you. Hear what the Lord has Come on. 